Uh, the readings from Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 28. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whenever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of of our sin. Well, good morning, everyone. And a special welcome to our visitors, any visitors that might be here with us this morning. We're glad to have you, and we, uh, we hope that you'll be encouraged and edified with, by your time here with us this morning. As mentioned, we're going to be starting a series from the book of Romans, and I'm starting in chapter 3, but I'm going to have a, a quick recap of chapters 1 and 2 leading up to chapter 3. And so uh, the reading that we had was verses 9 to 20, and uh, I'm going to get back to that. I'm not going to touch on that right now. I'm going to get back to that. And as I usually do, I like to give a little bit of a, a background. We looked at some of this about two weeks ago when we did Romans chapter 7. So a couple of things will seem familiar, and we're just going to take a look to start off. So I mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, we mentioned that Paul, is this, give me a second to get this on here. Paul is the author of the book of Romans. There we go. Good, it's working. So Paul is the author of the book of Romans. But something I didn't mention two weeks ago when we did Romans chapter 7, is, there you go, Tertius is the one that wrote down the letter. If you look at Romans chapter 16, verse 22, it tells us that Tertius is the one that wrote everything that Paul said. He wrote it down for us. I'll quickly read that. Romans chapter 16, verse 22. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. And so, Of course, you know, the obvious question is, well, who is this Tertius and why is he writing down the letter? I thought Paul was the author of the letter. Well, Tertius was a professional scribe called an amanuensis. And so one commentator describes it in this way. He says, in Paul's day, most letters were written by a professional scribe called an amanuensis. Generally, an amanuensis was used to guarantee letters would be grammatically sound and legible. So Tertius was Paul's scribe, and he inserted his own greeting at the close of the letter. So in other words, he wrote down everything so that everything was written correctly, that the grammar was good, that everything was done right. But it's from Paul. Paul is talking to him. He's writing it down. Picture almost like a secretary taking notes. It was like that. That's what he was doing. And so he's just the writer. He's not the author of the book. And then we mentioned that in Chapter 1, verse 7, the letter is written to the Christians living in Rome. So that's the background that we get. But we're getting a little bit more background now because we're going to look at chapters 1 and 2, background that leads up to chapter 3. So in chapter 1, Paul went on to say that he desired 
to see the church in Rome. He desired to be with them. It's interesting because he had never been to Rome before, but he knew some of the members that were in the congregation there in Rome. And if you were to look at the list at the end, in Romans chapter 16, you'll see some of the people that are mentioned, like Priscilla and Aquila, people that he knew that he met in his travels. So it's interesting. He knew people in the church, but he had never been there to Rome to actually see everybody and to be with them and to worship together with them. And so so he says in chapter 1 that he heard about their great faith, uh, which was being reported all over the world. So this faith was something that could be seen. And he's probably talking about them sharing the gospel, that they were doing it so much that it was starting to become known everywhere. Everybody, everybody was hearing about it, and he was hearing about it. He had received a report about it. And so he says in... Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentiles. So he follows, he starts talking about, he heard the report from them that their faith, that they were being very active. And then he talks about the gospel and he talks about not being ashamed of the gospel. And neither were they. Obviously not if they were sharing it and it was being reported everywhere. And so. Uh, for in the gospel of righteousness from God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is, as, as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Yeah, I got that out. So this is what these Christians were doing in Rome. They were living by faith, knowing they were saved by God's righteousness, not a righteousness of their own. And they were preaching the gospel and everybody was hearing about it. They were a very active church. So after that, verses 18 to 32 of Romans chapter 1, Paul talked about people who should know better yet reject God's will for them. And he's talking specifically about Gentiles. And he lists a lot of things there, and I'm not going to go through them, but I just want to read off a few key verses of things that he touches on in regards to those Gentiles and and what he's talking about as far as them resisting the will of God. And this is what he says. Key verse, starting verses 18 and 19. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. So this is the kind of people that he's talking about. We know that from creation there is a creator. And so what is plain is in front of us. We know that there is a God. And so... It's talking about the wrath of God being revealed to these people who should know better. Then, key verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 28. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And then finally, verse 32, where he says, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And so he's talking about the state of mind that they have and and their behavior. Now, and he switches gears when he comes over to chapter 2. And he switches audience as well. He's talking about Gentiles in chapter 1. He switches. He talks about the Jews in chapter 2. Verse 17 and onward shows us that Paul had the Jews in mind in chapter 2. 
He was highlighting their self-righteousness and everything. If you were to read through it yourself, and I'm not going to go through it this morning, but you read through it and you'll realize that he's talking about the Jews. He's talking about their self-righteous behavior. And that kind of gives us a little background when you come up to chapter 3. And not just chapter 2, but in chapter 3 at the beginning, he's covering that too. But from the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, we get this picture that the Jews were trying to convince Gentile Christians that they had to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. And so Paul pointed out that they were not even following the law. If you go through it, read chapter 2, the start of chapter 3, you'll see that. That Paul gets after it. He says, you guys are getting after these guys, but you're not even doing it. You're not even following the law. So back to Romans chapter 3. We had the reading a while ago. The verses that were read to us, Paul had concluded that all people on earth are under sin. And he said that no one was righteous, not a single person. So this is the righteousness according to God's high standards and not our own. So some of you might remember two weeks ago when we covered Romans chapter 7, we talked about verses 7 to 25. We mentioned that Paul said that God's law was perfect due to his failure to keep it. And that's how high God's standards are. They're so high that we just can't keep it. And that is how good and holy and righteous he is. So... God's law is holy and righteous. God's word is his standard. So Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. They're not afraid. They're defiant. They're going to do what they want to do, and, and who cares what God says? That's the kind of attitude that they have. So then Paul said in verse 20, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Through the law, we become conscious of sin. It almost kind of sounds like a recap of chapter 7 that we looked at two weeks ago, doesn't it? Well, Paul wanted his audience to understand that no one was righteous by observing the law. It was through the law that people became aware of sin. That's how they learned about sin. He was using the argument to appeal to both the Jew and the Gentile. Paul wanted his audience to understand that even those who did not have the law, the Gentiles, were under the law, even though they didn't know it. So let me give you an example. Che likes to go to, back to Singapore every two or three years, my wife. She's from Singapore. And so we'll fly back there every two or three years, and uh, we'll get there, arrive at the airport, and then we'll meet her parents, and we'll get together, and we'll do stuff. Now imagine, this is hypothetical, it didn't really happen. Imagine I went to a shopping mall or something, and I walk out of the shopping mall, and all of a sudden the police are there, and they say, you're under arrest. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm under arrest? For what? What did I do? And they put me in handcuffs, and they're taking me away. Now imagine. Now, somehow I broke the law, and I didn't realize I broke the law, and I'm arrested for it. So I try to explain that I didn't realize that I broke the law. And I might get a reaction like this. That's actually Singapore police, by the way. So that's actually police from Singapore. So I might get a reaction like that. You didn't know the law. You know, you traveled all the way here and you didn't know, you know. And so he might say something like, well, you should have done your homework before you came to Singapore. You know, I think that is an obvious thing to do, don't you? Well, you would think so, right? If you're going to travel to another country, you think you check out and see what the laws are like to make sure you don't break the law. And so oftentimes people don't do that, even though they should and they could. 
So after the officers explain how I broke the law, I become aware of my transgression, right? I realize I broke the law. I didn't realize I broke the law. But ignorance is not an excuse, right? I go to Singapore, I break the law. I can't say, well, I, I didn't know. Because the officers will say, you should have checked. You should have known. You should have done your homework. So I didn't know that was the law. I didn't know that was the standard that Singapore had in place, right? So the fact that I didn't know the law does not change the fact that I am still under the law. I go to Singapore, I'm under their law. I have to obey their laws. So it was the same with the Jews and the Gentiles. They were both under the law, even if the Gentiles didn't know it. Do not kill. Do not steal. All these things. These are God's holy standard. And so these are laws intended for everyone because they speak of God's holiness. They speak of how high God's standard is. So that means everyone is accountable to God. And that's what it was talking about in those verses we heard from the reading. That everyone is accountable to God, both then and now, as it says in verse 19. So God can justly judge the world because the whole world has gone astray. Everybody has followed their own ways and turned away from God. No one is righteous, not even one. And that's what we're reading and that's what we're learning. No one is righteous and deserving of salvation by their own good behavior, not the Gentiles, as Paul laid out in chapter 1, not the Jews, as Paul laid out in chapter 2 and 3. God's own chosen people, not even they, are deserving of salvation because of their sin. So no one today is righteous either. No one is deserving of salvation today either on their, on their own merits, is what I'm referring to. No one will ever be perfectly obedient to God. No one can earn their way to heaven by their own good behavior. In the next six verses, Paul did two things. He gave the solution to our lost state, and he showed that God is a just God who makes men righteous. So in the next six verses, verses 21 down to 26, Paul lays that out for us. So let's read verse 21 together. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. So righteousness apart from the law came. A righteousness that was and is from God. The law and the prophets testify about this righteousness. The Old Testament in general testifies about this righteousness. It's a righteousness that has been made known. And we don't have to try to follow the law of Moses perfectly to receive it. It doesn't depend on the law. It depends on our faith in what God did. And that's where it counts. In our faith in what God did through Jesus Christ. Verses 22 to 24 now. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. So the righteousness that comes from God is through faith in Christ Jesus. It is not a righteousness for a select group of people. It comes to all who believe, all who are willing to believe. So Paul made it clear that we are justified only by what Jesus did. His ultimate sacrifice is what saves us. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes the man who doesn't want to know God, the atheist. That includes the man with high morals and values, who is, has a high place in society, but he's not a churchgoer. And that includes the man who has studied God's word thoroughly, who is following God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it is only through Jesus that we're justified. 
being found in Christ, that we become righteous. Righteous by what he did, righteous by his blood that was shed on the cross. And that's called grace. And it's interesting that the Greek word charis for grace can also be translated as gift, a gift. So grace, gift. And I like that. That's interesting. So we think of the grace, we think of it as a gift. Grace is undeserved or unearned or unmerited love and mercy that God has shown us. That's what it is. God has found a way, and this is what I like. God has found a way to hold on to his high standard of justice while at the same time justifying the sinner. He can continue to hang on to that high standard, yet still justifies the sinner, and it comes together. And it's so interesting the way that God does things. According to God's great holiness and standard, we deserve condemnation, spiritual death because of our sins. But God, knowing that we could do nothing to change our situation, and that's how loving a God we have, would not leave us just to die in our sins. He took care of that problem, too. He knew that he was the only one who could save us, and that's exactly what he did. He created a way to do this through his son. Verses 25 and 26 now. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So Christ was the sacrifice of atonement, not bulls and goats. His precious blood was shed so that having faith in that blood, godly blood, not the blood of animals who could not relate to our sinful state, but rather the blood of someone who could relate to our sinful state, there might be atonement and holiness. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Think about under the old covenant, what they had to do, all those animals they had to sacrifice. But it was only an annual reminder of sins. It didn't actually take the sins away. So there had to be a life for a life. Just like under the old covenant, it was an animal, the the life of an animal for your life. Well, Jesus is the life for our life. He takes our place, each and every one of us. A life for a life. Only by the sacrifice and blood of Jesus can atonement be made on our behalf, having had our sins washed away by the blood of Jesus. That's the only way to be able to stand before God holy and pure, is to be washed by the blood of Jesus. And this happens through the waters of baptism. When we have responded to the good news of salvation by being baptized, we have taken the step of believing in the blood of Jesus, believing that it can take away our sins. And God did this to demonstrate his justice, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Paul talked about justification here. Let me just say this. The term justification is a legal term. And one commentator said this about justification. He said, it is the passing of a verdict favorable to the accused, acquitting him, which means the guilty person is declared not guilty. Man is presented as a guilty transgressor. God is holy and upright. Man's inability to clear himself of the charges against him is evident. God's act of forgiving sins by grace through faith on the basis of Christ's shed blood is justification. The judge of heaven and earth does not decree that believers are innocent of the charge of having sinned. We're guilty. He rather interposes the death of Jesus as the payment of our penalty. In other words, God accepts the death of Jesus 
as the penalty, paying the penalty for us so that we can be forgiven. That's what it means. Jesus pays the price for us. Baptism is where, after we have heard the good news about Jesus and believed, everything comes together. It is where we are washed by the blood of God the Son, Jesus. It's where we are forgiven of our past sins. It is where we die to sin and are raised to a new life. We become a new creation at that time. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And so we believe in Christ. We believe in what he did. We choose to follow God. And we know that we have to be baptized to have those sins taken away. I usually like to use the example. When I first became a Christian, I was coming out for worship in the Moncton congregation. I had not quit smoking yet. I had given up drugs. I had given up alcohol, everything, pretty well everything, except the smoking took a little longer. And I remember used to sit there and most, almost everybody was sitting on the other side. And I was almost sitting alone. There was a couple people around me. And I wondered why that was, because when I first came here, everybody was sitting everywhere. Then all of a sudden, now everybody's just sitting over there, and I'm sitting over here. And I realized it's the smell of the cigarette smoke. And I could see some of them <coughs> coughing and gagging and all that. And I realized I have to give up the smoking. I'm hurting everybody. So I did. But then it made me think of sin and the sin stain. It makes me think that way, like as if God can't get close to us. God loves us, but he can't get close to us because the sin is on us. Just like that cigarette smoke. You know, they loved me. They wanted to get close to me, but they just couldn't take it. So they sat over there, you know, and and it makes me think of sin. And sin is like that. Sin is on us and God can't get close to us the way that he would want to. The sin has to be removed. And that happens through the waters of baptism. We are being washed by godly blood at that time. So one last passage of scripture I'd like us to read and take a look at. And that's Galatians chapter three, verses twenty one to twenty nine. And there's some things there that relate to what we've been talking to. And so I'd just like to read those verses. And so starting in verse 21, the Apostle Paul says, Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But the scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law. Let me see if I'm on the right page here. Okay. Uh, There we go. Locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So what we saw laid out for us in the text this morning is that sin is what separates us from God. Jesus is the solution, and faith in him and what he did on the cross brings salvation, and obedient faith, which includes being baptized into Christ. What a blessing to know that righteousness is not based on our own goodness or performance in this life, but rather on someone else's. Imagine if Judgment Day came, if Christ had not come to die, if we're judged on our performance 
and our good behavior while we're on this, on this earth, living in this earth, how many of us could say that we could actually go to heaven? Well, obviously none of us. No one is righteous, not one. Righteousness is based on what our Lord Jesus did. He did the will of his Father with perfect obedience. And he died for all of us so that we could have an opportunity to become righteous and holy, and that by his blood. So have you taken that step yet to become righteous and holy? Have you been baptized into Christ? To quote something that I heard last week, which I thought was pretty interesting, Emmanuel Bernstein, he did a pretty good job. And he said something in his lesson that kind of stood out for me. And I'm just going to quote that. He said, if you're holding back on being baptized because you think you have to be perfect first, then you're already there. You're ready. That's what he said. And I like that. And that's true. I often tell people that if you have to be perfect first before you're going to be baptized, then Jesus came and died for nothing. Because that's the whole reason he came is because we're not perfect. We needed Christ. That was his whole purpose for coming to earth. He came to earth to save us because we are not perfect. And we will never be perfect enough on our own. We need the blood of Jesus. So make the choice today to be in Christ and forgiven. If you're here and you have not done that, won't you do that now as we sing our invitation song together?